Well, good morning, Door Creek. It is really good to be together. If you're a guest here, a special welcome to you. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and we're really glad that you're here. So I want to give a quick update, if you didn't get my note from Mark, which just shared some really exciting news. So grateful to the good faithfulness of our God to supply the needs that we had. So at the end of the year, we had one of those, another kind of mountains to climb as we came to the end of our ministry year. And uh, out of the generosity of you guys, people here at Door Creek, at both campuses, uh, we, we had $365,000 come in this month. We're just short of three. Yeah, that's a great praise. You can do that. That's great. We're, uh, we're just finalizing the expenses for the month and then for the year, and, and it's really, really encouraging. So thanks for being cheerful givers. Thanks for allowing generosity to be one of those places where you're showing your love for God and, and using that as an opportunity to trust him for all that you have, an expression of all that you are, and your commitment to Christ and his work in, the, in this world through this place as we seek to change lives around the world. So thank you, thank you. Before we get into the message, though, I wanted just to pray. We've been watching the storm. We still know all that's happened down to Hurricane Harvey, and I just want to lift that whole situation up in our service as we continue. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercies that are new every day, for being a God who provides, for give, being a God who allows us to join you in this world with our lives and our resources, to see people's lives find hope in the gospel of your son who died for us. We love you and we thank you again. Lord, our hearts are heavy for all that's breaking out right now in Florida and, and heavy for all those who are trying to get their feet on the ground and, and trying to understand how they can come through the devastation of Hurricane Harvey down in Houston. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercy for those in the storm right now, for your protection. We pray for those who are rebuilding their lives or soon will be in that journey. We pray that you'd encourage them when they find themselves in the depths of despair. And we pray that they turn to you and find you a real present help in a day of trouble. Father, we pray for your church, wherever it's gathered down in Houston or in Florida, and your church around the country, that we would be faithful in praying, that we would be faithful in giving as we are led and serving where we are able. And so we just lift that all before you today. And then, Lord, as we come to your word, we are so grateful for your word. It is a living word. It is powerful, and it has full sway in our lives, and we want to hear it for what it says today. We want to believe it and lean into it, and so grow our faith. And for some listening today, would you grant them faith to believe that your son is the hope of the world, and if that's true, the hope for their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. amen. So we're working through the storyline of the Bible, and we've come to a very important juncture. In fact, it happened last week, Pastor David. He moved us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that period that moves between the Old and the New is actually 400 years of history. And something good to know about that history is not just the, the po political landscape where it goes from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, and then it goes the Medo-Persian Empire to the Romans. But understand, in that period of God's people were oppressed and in exile, coming out of exile and trying to find their way in the land as they're oppressed by other foreign powers, is it was a time of complete darkness relative to hearing from God. 
There is no word of prophecy that we have in the Bible from that period. Nothing. And so it's significant when John opens his gospel that he would open with the words, in the beginning was the word, because they haven't heard the word of God for 400 years. And the word was with God, and the word was God, speaking of God's son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. When we come to the gospels, it's good to know that if we were traveling Palestine at that time, on every corner, if we were in the city of Jerusalem, you'd see like a centurion. Maybe you've traveled to some of those countries where there's a soldier with a machine gun at every corner. You go, wow, I'm not used to that. That, that was their world, Roman soldiers. There was Roman tax collectors like Matthew, who writes the first gospel, like Zacchaeus, right, who climbed the tree and met Jesus. Tax collectors who weren't collecting taxes for, for Israel, but for Caesar. That, that's the climate of what's going on. And so Jesus comes, and he brings the good news, and the gospels record the good news. That's what gospel means. We've got four gospels. It's easy to think, well, the gospel is like a biography. These are four biographies on Jesus. Actually, this is not a good way to think of the gospels. When you think about a biography, typically they, they try to cover the span of a person's life. They typically are chronological. The Gospels don't work that way. In fact, the Gospels not only are not chronological, the Gospels singularly focus on Jesus' public ministry the last three years of his life, ages 30 to about 33, focusing on his teaching, focusing on his miracles, focusing on especially his death and resurrection, and then how people responded to Jesus. The message sent from heaven. The Gospels were written to a broad audience, not just to followers of Jesus, but as we'll see in John's Gospel, to people like Nicodemus, who we're going to meet in John 3, who are not yet believers. Here's what John says about the purpose of his writings, chapter 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the storyline, how do, how do the Gospels fit? Well, the Gospels tie into the storyline because the Gospels are pronouncing, proclaiming, and Jesus is claiming and will be killed for claiming this, that he is the promised king, the anointed Messiah, the savior of Israel, the hope of the world. He's the one that God had promised Eve to. One of your descendants is going to crush and destroy the enemy's head, right, in Genesis chapter 3. He's, he's the son of Abraham who's going to bring blessing to all the families of the world. He is this son of David who is going to reign eternally and set up an eternal kingdom. He's who Isaiah says is this suffering servant who's going to suffer for our sin. The Old Testament is saying he's coming, he's coming. The New Testament, the Gospels, he's come and he's coming again. So that's how it ties to the storyline. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke are the first three Gospels, and then John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, after John is Acts. If you're new to the Bible, just grab the table of contents, and we'll start in on verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. And said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. 
For no one could perform the signs, that's John's word for miracles, the miracles you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So the setting is at night. And Nicodemus is coming at night. And as we understand who he is and what's just happened in chapter 2, it makes all the sense that he slipped in kind of under the cloak of darkness to have a spiritual conversation with this man that he has been taken by. Like, wow, who is this guy? I, I got I to gotta talk to him more. He's a Pharisee. That means he's part of this religious group that was very devout. These were pious men that were singularly concerned about keeping the law of God. He's part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, one of 70 distinguished leaders. He, he's a big wig. He's a good man. You'd love to have Nick as your neighbor. The Pharisees were so intense about not breaking the law of God, they said, well, man, we don't want to get anywhere near to breaking the law of God, so we're going to put all these fences around the law so we don't get near breaking the law. And what they found out is, what we find out is Jesus has a problem with them because they don't distinguish their fence from the law, and they're all stuck on the external things, and Jesus has always been concerned about the heart. As far back as Deuteronomy, God is saying to his people, look, I'm not looking for just an external sign that you're in relationship with me, speaking of circumcision. I want your hearts to be circumcised. And so there's tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, just in chapter 10, in chapter 2, right before us. Uh, the context is Jesus goes and clears the temple. Some of us, oh, yeah, we know that story. If you don't know the story, Jesus goes into the temple. So this is this holy place where God's people are to meet God. It's, it was the very presence where God's presence would rest, the place where God's presence would rest. And so Jesus walks in, and there's all these money changers around. And he has a complete meltdown, and it looks like he's, he's losing it, and he's in a fit of rage. But everything that's going on here is, is all, it's all good. This is righteous anger that he's expressing here. And what does he say? You guys, this is my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you guys have just turned it into a den of thieves. And he wasn't pointing to the Dunkin' Donuts and the Starbucks coffee that they were selling. It had nothing to do with that. People get confused about, there's a cafe. What do we do with the cafe? We're selling stuff in the house. Jesus, he, he'll throw that. No, that's not what he was doing. What he was doing is going, why are you taking economic advantage of people as they come in to pay their temple tax and they need to change their money and you're ripping them off? 
And these people that don't live in Jerusalem, so they can't bring their lamb, they got to buy your lamb. And why are you ripping them off when you sell them the doves and when you sell them the, the rams and the lambs for the sacrifices? You've, you've taken economic advantage of them, and you've turned this whole thing into a place for your own greedy advancement. This is not what this place is about. And as he overturns the table, it's just symbolic and, and like a metaphor of him saying, I am here to overturn religion. These external pursuits and the empty external pursuits that are going on. So that's what, that's the kind of people, that's his tribe, the Pharisees. Jesus has just had the first encounter. You read the other Gospels, and it isn't long into his ministry when it's these very people that go, this guy's got to go. And you get to the end of the story, and they're responsible for Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross. So tons of tension, which explains why he's slipping in under darkness that night to speak with Jesus. So what is he searching for? What is he asking Jesus for? We don't know. All we know is he, he just says, we, I, I know who you are. So this, this little mini-series in John, we're, we're, we're entitling it, Who is Jesus? And if we ask, who does Nicodemus think Jesus is? The answer is what? Verse 2, let me read it again. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Who does he think Jesus is? A good teacher sent from God. Somebody that obviously you're doing such special things that, you know, God's with you. God's with you. Now, the interesting thing is, remember what John says at the very beginning in verse 1? No, actually, Jesus was with God from the very beginning, and actually, he is God. So he doesn't quite have it right, like so many today. Maybe some of us today go, well, you know, I don't know if he's the son of God, but I got to say, he's got some amazing things, and I wish more of us would kind of pay attention to it. Uh, that's his understanding of Jesus. So we don't really know what he's searching for because he's, he doesn't get to, we don't get to this point where he says, okay, so uh, why are you here, Nick? He just jumps in, and I think Jesus' answer helps us understand what he was searching for and especially what this religious man who is very focused on living a moral life, what he needed to hear. So Jesus launches in. And he starts talking about the kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is kind of this ethereal, like, what exactly is the kingdom? Jesus comes preaching the good news of the kingdom. You start chasing, and you go, the kingdom is breaking out, and it's here, but it's not fully here, so it's now, but it's not yet, and so it's to come. It's this thing that he says is like a little tiny mustard seed that can grow into something bigger. It's this dynamic thing that's growing. And go, what is the kingdom exactly? What is the kingdom? John will only use it two times. Chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. The other gospels will use it countless times. You'll run into it. So when you, hear, when you read the phrase kingdom of God, the easiest kind of syllogism to work out in your mind is, oh, what does every kingdom have? Class, a king. Let's say it again. What does every kingdom have? A king. That will help you. Actually, it will help you. And so who's the king? Jesus is the king. He's the promised king, that son of David who's going to set up the eternal kingdom. He's this king who's going to come to give up his life for his subjects who have been treasonous. He's the king. He's talking about relationship with the king. 
for a guy like Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, when it comes about entering the kingdom of God, you want to know how to enter the kingdom of God? Well, that, that is all about a relationship with God in heaven, eternity, eternal life. So that's what he wants to talk to Nick about. Now, I want you to notice, as he does that, he's going to unpack who God is. You want to know how you, how you can enter the kingdom, how, how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with God that makes you eternally secure? Well, then you need to understand who God is and what he's done and what your proper response is. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to unpack the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible never uses that word, but it impacts it. And here's Jesus giving us a classic example of Trinitarian doctrine teaching. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 8, he's going to unpack the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, we just read it, that gives us new spiritual life. That's what he's talking about, born again, born of the Spirit, new life today through the dynamic work of the Spirit. In verses 9 through 15, he's going to talk about his witness what he knows is he's come from heaven about God and his plan and his heart and, and his work that is all work wrapped together in the cross. So he's going to talk about himself, the son. In verses 16 through 18, he's going to talk about the loving purposes of the father. So we're in that opening section here, verses 3 through 8, where he's talking about the dynamic work of the spirit. And it's blowing Nick away because he's, he's literally thinking that Jesus is talking about literal rebirth. And Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about physical birth here. I'm talking about spiritual rebirth, new life through the spirit that is ours today. He says, I don't get it. He says, you should get it. You should get it because you're a teacher of the law. Look at verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. Hey, you're one, of the, you're one of the teachers of Israel. You've studied the Bible, the Old Testament. And do you not understand these things? He didn't understand these things. He was forgetting what the, what the scriptures say, like in Ezekiel chapter, uh, chapter 36, when the prophet, looking forward to the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer, talks about the sprinkling that brings cleansing and the new life. Of the Spirit. So I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is God speaking through his prophet. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's part of new life through the Spirit is forgiveness from all the crap in our life that we've done wrong or suffered wrong that is just burying us. That's like huge hope. Really? Forgiveness from all impurities? He goes on, from all other idols that we've sought, I'll give you a new heart. This is that spiritual new birth, born again, born of the Spirit, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, that dead heart that has no spiritual impulse towards God, and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And you don't know these things? Nick, it's been there all along. And this is what you need. That's how you enter. You enter through the dynamic work of the Spirit that, that applies Christ's death on the cross 
and, and it forgives all the sins that he died for, and it makes you new and alive. You have spiritual life. It's a reality that you have today. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. So maybe why Nick keeps saying, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, is because their construct of really being good, moral people who keep God's law and then a whole bunch of other laws so we don't even get close to that, that it's so easy to start thinking that should count for something. I should get some, some reward for that, that that actually is how I can know I'm going to the kingdom of heaven because I keep the law. But he's forgotten that the law's primary function is to show the character of God, the heart of God. And then it's like this mirror that as we read the law, we go, oh, shoot, I, I broke that. It's like when you're driving down the street and you see a cop. And, and he's got his radar. You think he might have his radar. And the first thing you do, maybe simultaneously, is you hit the brakes, but you're looking at your speedometer. The law is having you check how you're driving. And the law does that. And they were forgetting that it not only showed God's heart, but it also shows our own heart. In other words, we can't keep the law. But from the beginning of the story, that was the deal. God says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And they say, we're in on this covenant relationship. Good, here's the deal. You got to take me at my word. You got to keep my law. You need to obey my commands. You got to trust my promises. And all through the storyline that we've been studying, they keep saying, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And they keep going, oops, 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 oops. And at one point we go, they're so bad, they're so bad. And then we go, oh, I'm so like that. So like that. Praise God that he doesn't turn his back on his covenant promise. So that's what a religious man needed to hear. You, you actually can't do it. This is a supernatural thing. This is, this is the work of the Spirit. It is so mysterious, but it's real. In, in, in the way that winds are mysterious, we don't know where they come from, where they're going, but man, we hear them, we see the devastation. That's Irma right now, right? Everything's about wind, wind, wind. So then he gets to the witness of Christ, verses 9 and following. So we've already looked at 9 and 10. Pick it up in verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I speak unto you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I'm talking about new life today with God through the Spirit, you can't get your mind around that. How in the world are you going to ever get your mind around life in eternity, new heaven, new earth? When he's talking about we here in verse 11, he's talking not about he and his disciples because he's going to talk about being in heaven and seeing things and coming back and telling us about that. Not, even, not coming back, but coming from. They weren't up there. They didn't come from heaven. He's talking, his we reference here is to the Father and the Spirit. We speak of what we know. We've testified to this. But, you know, you guys still don't believe it. Just like they didn't believe the prophets when they came. Kind of note to self, as we seek to be a joyful witness, people who are sharing and living the good news, people that are extending, you know, Christ's compassion to people in need, that we, we should just get ready for when the light comes into darkness, it exposes darkness, and there's a lot of people that won't have anything with it. 
And so we share with the spouse, we share with our kids, we share with mom and dad, we share with a brother, a sister, a family friend, a co-worker, someone down the floor of our dorm, and we're going, I love this person, and I'm not beating them up with a Bible or anything. I'm just telling them the good news that is their only hope, and they want nothing of it. Was there ever a better witness than Jesus? And they rejected him. That's what he just said. They rejected him. John is saying the same thing early on in chapter 1. The, the, the gospel ends. Such great rejection that they crucify him. They, don't, they won't accept our testimony. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying, now look, there are prophets, and we've heard of prophets, and we read the histories of these prophets, and they were out in the desert or somewhere, and they were meditating on God, and they were like beamed up into this heavenly vision where they experienced God's presence in heaven and received a special message. Jesus is saying, I didn't get beamed up. I didn't get beamed up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him. He is the creator God. He didn't go up to get this message. This is an unmediated message, meaning a direct message from God, the Son of God, the Word of God, to explain who God is and what his purposes are in this world for you and me and where we can find life and hope and peace and forgiveness and joy and satisfaction and purpose. He said, I didn't, I didn't get it. I brought it. Has anybody else done that? And then he alludes to this story in the Old Testament. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. What's he talking about? Well, there's a story in Deuteronomy, in Numbers chapter 21. God has just rescued his people out of the oppression, 400 years of bondage in, in Egypt, and they've moved through the Red Sea, and they're going through the wilderness towards the promised land, but it's hard. There's a couple million people, and they're out of food, and they're out of water, and what they have, they say, this food is crummy. This food is gross. We hate it, and what are you doing, God? And they're griping, they're complaining, they're belly aching, and we would too. And God punishes them. And this vast span of people, a couple million, right? All of a sudden, there's these slithering venomous snakes that are crawling everywhere. And they're biting women, and they're biting babies, and they're biting grown men, and grandmas, and grandpas. And people are dropping. They're dying. This is the story. Numbers 21. They cry out to God, God, have mercy on us. We are, we are we are so ungrateful and we've forgotten what you've done for us and we're not trusting you right now. Forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. God says, Moses, go fashion a serpent out of bronze and put it up on a pole. And you tell the people this. If you get bit by the snake, you look at that serpent up on the pole and you'll live. Look and live. Look and live. The serpent didn't save them. Their faith saved them. God said, this is what I'm telling you to do. Look and live. And they took God at his word. That's faith. And they were saved. Even though they were bit with the venom, they lived. He says in verse 14, let's read it again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a what? A cross. That everyone who believes, everyone who looks and will live, right? Everyone who believes 
takes God at his word, that this is the promised Savior, the hope of the world, the one who's died in my place, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And so he tells him about who he is. He is the son of man who's come from heaven, will be lifted up on a cross, and his sacrifice is the gateway into eternal life. And when he said son of man, that's one of the common titles that Jesus grabs from the Old Testament, like in Daniel chapter 7. And when he, when he said son of man, Nick is all over it. Remember, he's a Jewish, he's like a scholar. He knows his Old Testament. Son of man was this beautiful phrase and title that Daniel gives in his visions about this coming Savior. Look at it in Daniel 7 up on the screen. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is, ever, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And so he says, you want to enter the kingdom? Well, you can't do it, but the Spirit can. And when you're given new life, it also means all your sins are forgiven. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the dynamic work of the Spirit that is actually applying the saving work of Christ on the cross, the one who will be lifted up. You want to enter in heaven? Then you need to understand this final thing about God's heart, and that's where he goes next. Verse 16. Boy, this is one that, for many of us, one of the first verses we ever heard, if we've memorized scriptures, one of the first scriptures wasn't that long ago where every time you turned on a sporting event, you'd see John 3.16. This is it. Who heard it first? Nick. Nicodemus. For God so loved the world. Not Israel. The world. That he gave his one and only son, his unique son, the one who is not only like God, who is God and perfectly reveals who God is that whoever believes in him, that is the Son, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so he points to the Father's heart. It's a heart of love. What is motivating this gospel story? It's God's love. We know about his love, and it's a love that is giving, right? He gives his one and only son. Jesus gives up his life, and the gift here is the son. That's what he's giving. And his aim in giving it, his purpose, is not to condemn. And for a guy like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, they were really excited about God's coming to wipe out 
the evil nations. I don't know if you remember me saying this a couple weeks ago when we were in Jonah. I said, one of the tricky things about prophecy is when the prophet is talking, he's often talking about successive events. There could be a near event. There could be that future event, which usually is Christ's first coming, and then there is his second coming. So three events. Now, the Bible in the Old Testament will talk about God coming to bring judgment. That's his second coming. Christ doesn't come the second time as a savior, but as a judge and to make all things right and to establish perfectly his kingdom and his reign in this universe so that now heaven has come to earth, new heaven, new earth. And so there is some truth to that, that God would judge the nations, but actually that's the, that's the far off Christ's coming. And they're all, they all about that. And you and I would have been tempted to be all about that because, come on, there's Roman guys all over. And come on, we got to, God, you got to deliver us like you did from Egypt and like you did from all the other bad guys out there. It would have been easy to fall into that. And, and he's just setting the record straight. I'm here to save, not to condemn. And the ultimate goal is that you would receive eternal life. So he's heard the witness. John said, these things are written. He's heard the promise. Eternal life. New life through the Spirit. And, and Jesus is saying, and so this is what you need to do, Nick. You, you got to believe. I mean, five times in verses 4, 15 through 18, we run across the word believe. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in 15. That whoever believes in 16 shall not perish but have eternal life. 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Look at the very end at, at, at verse 36 to just say how important faith is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son, whoever does not believe, will not see life. Why? Because we're still in a wrath. God's wrath remains on us. God's wrath remains on everybody and the only way we come out from under that is realizing and believing that Jesus took my punishment. And then I believe that, and I look on Christ in faith. I live, though I've been bit with the curse, and I'm part of the problem. And that's what Nick needed, this very religious man. He needed to know that believing in Jesus Christ, God's only son, not only gives us new life today, but the hope of eternal life forever. John tells us that he came to that point somewhere along the line where he believed. In chapter 7, he's defending Jesus before the religious council as the heat's getting stronger. And then at the end of the gospel in chapter 19, we read this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by, there he is, Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. He moved from the witness of Jesus 
to the promise of new life today in the spirit, eternal life by faith, by faith. His construct before he met Jesus is, I got to be a good person. I got to live a holy life. I got to keep the law. And all that focuses in on ourselves. And the problem with banking your hopes for the future and, and experiencing the fullness of new life today, which is a gift through faith in Christ, is if it's on me and my good works, I'm always left with that nagging question. What is the question? Is it good enough? Well, then I look around and I go, well, this is a little better than his. I'm feeling good about that one too and that one. But then the Bible says, and Jesus will say it later, chapter 6, be perfect as your Father is in heaven. He's perfect. He can't be perfect. That's right. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> so who are you going to trust? Who are you believing? Do you know that you were made for something more? Nick knew that. That's why he went that night. There was great courage in him going. He was longing for something more because good moral living leads you needing something more. And Jesus says, it's not enough. It's not enough. You can't move from the, the promise I have and the witness you've heard. You can't move there through good works. It's only through Christ's good work. Have you received it? There is no reason you need to hit the pillow tonight without knowing it's so clear Believing that Jesus is the one and only Son of God who died on the cross in your place is our only hope, not one way. He's going to talk about chapter 14. I'm the way. It's not one way. He's not one of many. He's not just another prophet. He said, I came from heaven and I am God. It's the only way that we can find new life, be born again today, and the hope of eternal life that actually we experience qualitatively today and then fully one day when Christ comes back or calls us home. And that faith is profound. And it changes your life and how you face what is hard to the end of your life. And my 92-year-old dad, who is just so close to going home, keeps saying, well, I just don't get why. I keep praying, Lord, take me home, take me home. I can't wait to go home. I don't know why I'm not home yet. And I say, Fuddy, so Fuddy's Swiss German for dad. I know it's funny, but it's Fuddy. All right. I say, Fuddy, he's, he's got work to do. And you're showing us the nature of true faith as you persevere with joy and thanksgiving. I mean, I'm sitting at the table a month ago, and he's thanking the Lord for our good health. And I'm going, you don't have anything good relative to your health. I'm, he's teaching me about the nature of persevering faith. He's teaching me about the substance of faith. So as he's facing death, he's excited to die. Because his hope is secure, not in the life he's lived, but in the life that he's trusting in. Jesus Christ, the one who's lifted up, and he's looked, and he's living, and he knows he will still live in a much fuller way. Praise God. Let's pray. So God, give us that hope. You remember in, in Paul's writings that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And so we understand 
that not only our salvation, but our faith is a gift from you. You say your faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. And Lord, your people have heard the word of God. Holy Spirit, move. Give life. Give faith. That we be born again, born of the Spirit, cleansed of our sin. Filled with new life, new desires. A relationship with you. Hope of heaven. Do your work in your way for your glory and our good. Amen.